Good morning, Redeemer Church of Dubai. It's been a sweet journey for us all, looking through the book of Acts and learning how the good news of Jesus Christ was unstoppable. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus promised the Spirit before he ascended into the heavens. And he promised the Spirit so that his disciples will be his faithful witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. They would witness Jesus by proclaiming the word. We also saw in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus fulfills his promise. The Spirit comes, the church begins to exist. The word is proclaimed and a new community is formed. We saw in Acts chapter 4 that as the word spread, opposition began. But the Spirit gave the disciples of Jesus the courage to be his witnesses. The church continued to grow as the disciples proclaimed the word. And last week we saw that Satan was active and he was at work in the church. The Spirit is holy and he purged the church from sin. We, we learned that God's people are marked by holiness and not sin. But as we go through the rest of the book, when we come to chapters 6 and 7, particularly 7, we see that persecution increases. Stephen is killed. What happens? What will happen to the church? What is Jesus going to do? What about what he mentioned in chapter 1? How will the church expand to regions beyond Jerusalem? And that is, what, that is what we will see in these two chapters. And not just in these two chapters, we will see beyond these chapters how Jesus built his church. Well, friends, my hope is that we will not only see how Jesus built his church, but also in seeing how Jesus builds his church, we will understand the heart of Jesus. So turn with me to Acts chapter 8. The first point for my sermon is Jesus pursues the outsiders. And we see that in Acts chapter 8 verses 4 to 25. If you look at verse 1, it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. See, Stephen's death brought about a great persecution against the church. It was intense. What happened as a result of the persecution? We read in the same verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, that they all scattered, the disciples of Jesus scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The people began to scatter and they spread throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You know what happened after they scattered? Verse 4, now those who were scattered about, went about preaching the word. They preached the gospel. Interestingly, Luke closes this section in verse 25 by saying that as the apostles returned back to Jerusalem, the gospel was preached to many villages in Samaria. Interestingly, in this passage, we also read of a man named Philip. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. We read of Philip first in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. The church wanted men. They were looking for men who were of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, in order to help in the service of the church. And Philip was one of them. Stephen was with him too. What did these men who were filled with the spirit do? 
We see that they preach the gospel. We see that in chapter 7, Stephen preached the gospel. Men who are filled by the Spirit preach the gospel. And that's what Philip does here in the city of Samaria, verse 5. It's significant that because of the persecution, some of the Jewish Christians went to this city. It is significant because the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along well. It all started when the Assyrians intermarried with the people in Samaria, who are primarily Jews, who are Jewish people. This intermarriage was against the law. They also constructed a different temple on a different mountain. And they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. And so their hope was not for a Davidic king, but of a prophet like Moses. And so the Jewish people wouldn't mingle with them because they were treated as unclean. To the Jew, a Samaritan was classified as an outsider. Someone who did not belong. Outsider generally just means someone not from the same community. And for example, if you are a basketball fan and you join a group of people talking about cricket, you're an outsider. If you're from a different country, you can also be considered an outsider. If I'm speaking with my friends in Malayalam and my Tagalog brother comes, he would feel like an outsider. You can sense, feel the distance, the segregation there. The Samaritans were considered as outsiders, both religiously and racially. There was no friendship, just enmity. But do you see what, the perse- what persecution did? Jewish Christians go to the outsiders and preach Jesus. And we see in verse 6 that the crowds, that the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that they did, that he did. Well, what did Philip actually preach? Verse 12 tells us that he preached the good news about the kingdom of God. You see, the signs attested the gospel message that God's kingdom is here through Jesus, that it is through Jesus that the curse that Adam brought is reversed. That Jesus brought about God's rule through his work. And this, the signs here, was a miniature picture of what God was going to do in the future when he restores the creation. The crowds believed in the name of Jesus and were baptized. And we see that in verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. You see, verse 8 tells us, so there was so much joy in that city. They were joyful because they have now come to know God. And friends, here, here in the city, Jesus shows that his kingdom is not for a select few. Through his disciples, he pursues the outsiders. In pursuing those on the outside, Jesus warns both the Samaritans and the Jewish Christians to understand that he was creating a new people. And that is why the coming of the Spirit was delayed here in verses 14 to 17. You see, these people had believed, but they had not received the Spirit. Why? Is Luke telling us that there's another way to receive the Spirit? 
Well, if you look at the larger context of the New Testament, we see that people who put their faith in Jesus will receive the Spirit. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. We see that in Acts chapter 10 and 11, when Peter gives an account of what happened in the house of a Gentile, Peter says, if God gave them the same gift, who was the Spirit, the gift was the Spirit of God. If God gave the Gentiles the same, same gift, He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus. So we receive the gift, the Holy Spirit, the moment we put our faith in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, when Paul wrote to the church at, um, in the region of Galatia, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by your doings, by your workings of the law, by your obedience, or by hearing with faith? The answer is obvious. They received the Spirit by hearing with faith. But is there an answer here in the immediate context? I think so. You see, for generations, racial and religious hostility separated the Samaritans and the Jews. And now the Samaritans believed in the gospel. Even though they had come to know Christ, this hostility could have well continued. There was a real danger of dividing the church as two separate groups now, one for the Jews and the other for the Samaritans. It was to avoid this disaster that God in His wisdom delayed the reception of the Holy Spirit. The delay here in Acts chapter 8 in the city of Samaria to the Samaritans, this delay was God's way of protecting the church from division. Now, interestingly, when, when the apostles came, it was John who came along with Peter. John had earlier asked Jesus in Luke chapter 9 if he could command fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans because the Samaritans hadn't received the Jewish disciples well. And John wanted that, fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. Now, here in the city of Samaria, God wants John to witness that he was giving the same gift he had given to the Jewish Christians. This would have transformed John's understanding of Jesus' kingdom. So this delay served as a witness to both the Jewish Christians and the Samaritan Christians that Jesus is uniting two groups of body, two groups of people into one body. It was to help them receive each other as one in Christ. God is now showing the world the kind of people he creates. A body of Jews and Samaritans without the wall of enmity. See, Jesus not only pursues outsiders, he breaks barriers. Barriers that we have created. Racial barriers. Ethnic barriers. Even religious barriers. He breaks them by creating relationships that no human wisdom can create. And not only, not only does he reconcile us to him, he also reconciles us to each other. So friends, the unity of the church is dear to the heart of God. He made us one. And that is why he does what he does here. In chapter 8, we see a God who pursues outsiders, but also a God who protects the church from division. But that's not all that we see in chapter 8. We also see that Jesus is a God, is the God who pursues the outcast. And we see that in verses 26 to 40. Jesus pursues the outcasts. An outcast is 
someone who is denied association by people or even by groups. The person is, could be excluded for various reasons. If you come to my, my home country, we have caste system and sometimes um, people from the lower castes are not allowed to walk in the streets where higher castes live. They're not even allowed to come to the shops where people from the higher castes go to. The lower caste people are excluded from society. In this section, in verse 27, we are introduced to an outcast. He was an Ethiopian. Now Luke writes in verse 27, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was an Ethiopian, and we are not thinking of the same Ethiopia that we know of now in the country of Africa. This is close to South Sudan today. He was an Ethiopian eunuch and was the treasurer of the queen. Candace was the dynastic title for the queen mother who performed government functions on behalf of the king, who was her son. And this official was her treasurer. He had come to Jerusalem to worship God. He would have experienced the exclusion from the worshiping community of Israel because he was not only a Gentile, but also a eunuch. Eunuchs were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. And we see that in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1. Now, although he wanted to worship God, he was excluded from the court of Israel. So probably he would have gone to a synagogue. He was an outcast. He could not belong with the people of God and would have therefore felt the experience of rejection. In verse 29 of this chapter, the Spirit of God speaks to Philip and he compels Philip to join the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, go and join this chariot. The reader of the text must not miss how Jesus is at work pursuing this outcast. Philip is brought to this road and moved toward this eunuch as he reads Isaiah 53. It says in verse 32 and 33, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Philip and the eunuch strike a conversation in verse 34. And soon Philip was asked to explain who Isaiah was talking about. Now Luke tells us in his gospel, which is the first book that he had written to Theophilus, in chapter 22 and verse 37, that Jesus applied Isaiah 53 to himself. This means that this passage finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the disciples learned that through Jesus, that this passage was fulfilled in Jesus. But how is the suffering of Jesus good news for the eunuch? You see, Isaiah 53 is about a servant who suffered humiliation. He was treated 
as an outcast. He was abandoned and rejected by men. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. They despised him. They mocked Jesus even when he did good. At his greatest moment of pain and separation, God forsook him so that outsiders and outcasts can be part of the family of God. Jesus endured the shame and rejection so that he would bring many sons to glory. And this was the good news for the eunuch. The eunuch will receive the honor and privilege of sonship if he trusts in Jesus. But friends, Luke does not want us to miss the prophecy that Isaiah made in his book. If you turn with me to Isaiah 56 and verses 3 to 5, Isaiah makes an astounding prophecy. It says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. There in Isaiah 56, Isaiah prophesies about eunuchs being restored to worship in the future. And if so, the conversion of the eunuch here was a sign that God's promises were coming to fulfillment now. The promise of restored worship prophesied by Isaiah is beginning to happen now. The new era promised by God has begun through Jesus. Outcasts have full access into the presence of God. The eunuch was thrilled and could not wait to be baptized. You see that in verse 30, 36 and, and 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And they went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch could not wait to witness his allegiance to Jesus, to those who were with him. You know, his workers were there with him, who was there with him during the journey. He's a high official, high-ranking official. And there to those people, he witnesses his allegiance to Jesus. We see in this section that Jesus pursues outcasts. You know, in the New Testament... When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he talked about um, the past of people, the pre-conversion life of the people, he referred to them as outcasts. So if you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at what he writes to the Gentiles. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You are outcasts. He uses words like far off in verse 13. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 16, Jesus reconciled both the Jew and the Gentiles to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. For through Jesus, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
no longer strangers, no longer outcasts, no longer excluded people, then what are we? He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens, family members. Here, here in the church of God, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. You see, relationships in the church are not defined by your racial background, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your education, your salary, your area of residence. That's not what defines relationship in the church. But Christ is all and in all, Paul says in Colossians 3. Family members, brothers and sisters, family of God. Redeemer family, we have the privilege of celebrating this unity that Jesus has created. We are people from more than 45 countries in our church. Cherish this relationship that Jesus has brought us into. Move toward your fellow family members as God had mo- has moved toward us. So we don't, we don't define our relationships the way the world does. The church is not a club, it's a family. We, we don't have to abandon our cultures and earthly citizenship. We really don't have to be. God is not asking me to, become, to not become an Indian. I am an Indian. But God is calling me to accept one another as God in Christ has accepted us. Relate to one another based on the relationship God has brought us into. And so what we see, friends, in Acts chapter, chapter 8 is that Jesus pursues the outsider and the outcast. His heart is for them. And he pursues them through his disciples, by the help of the Spirit, and that these disciples will go to these places and share the word of God. We see in chapter 9 that Jesus pursues his enemies. We see that in chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. Jesus pursues his enemies. We are introduced to a man named Saul. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we read that he was in approval of Stephen's execution. And as the church was grieving, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women and imprisoning those people. You have to have intense hatred to hurt someone when they are grieving. You have to be really insensitive to threaten someone when they are sad because they've lost a dear friend. There in eight, chapter 8, Stephen had just died and they were grieving. You have to be hard-hearted to want physical pain for people who are weak. This was an evil man. The fears nature of his opposition only kept increasing as is evident in in chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 it reads but Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way who were identified as disciples of Jesus men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem He was 
still threatening the disciples of Jesus with murder. He took the initiative to go to Damascus to find if there were disciples of Jesus in that town. Not that he had the power to kill them, but that he could imprison these disciples as troublemakers and send them to Rome. People were scared of this guy. Paul's presence meant trouble. And we attempted to ask, why did he have such hatred against the church? Why was he so zealous to destroy the church? And the answer lies in his own testimony. So if you read through Acts 22 and Acts 26 and Galatians 1 and 1 Timothy 1, in his own words, he says that he was a Pharisee who was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He was convinced that he had to act by opposing the name of Jesus because he didn't find Jesus convincing enough to be the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come in power, but here was a man named Jesus, an ordinary man, claiming that he could destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. He was trying to change the law, the law that God had given the nation of Israel. Certainly, certainly to the Pharisee, Jesus was a threat to the purity of Israel's faith. Paul was zealous for God's honor and would violently resist anyone who threatened God's glory. He was burning with zeal and by his own admission in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, he was blinded by ignorance until he met Jesus. Or rather, Jesus met him. We saw that he took the approval of the chief priest to imprison those belonging to the way in Damascus, which was about 215 kilometers away from Jerusalem. There could have been news that some of, some of the Jewish Christians fled to this city. Verse 3 reads, As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. The suddenness and the brightness of the light sent Saul falling to the ground. Later on, when Saul recalled his experience, he said that this light was brighter than the sun. Verse 4 tells us that it wasn't just some bright light, but there was a voice that asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To his shock, Paul learns that he was persecuting a person who possessed brilliant glory. But he did not know who this person was. And so he asked with respect in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? To which Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul now understood that he was not fighting people, but Jesus. He's already heard that twice. He wasn't going against people, but Jesus. He was living as an enemy of Jesus. Well, I, cannot, I cannot imagine what Saul would have felt at this time. This moment would have crushed his self-confidence and pride. Saul was blinded by Jesus' glory. Verse 8 tells us that he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. 
Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, not to show off his glory and blind this person in judgment. Of course, Jesus would be right in judging this person since he was an enemy of Jesus, but to reveal the glory of his grace. Friends, I want you to see the glory there is in Jesus' grace here. Jesus' grace will pursue his enemy and will save him from real blindness. Paul did not want to see Jesus as the Messiah. He was arrogant. Paul could not see Jesus as the Son of God. He was ignorant. Jesus' grace will soften Paul's heart and will give him sight to see Jesus as the King, the promised King, the Son of David. Jesus' grace will make Saul his own. And now Jesus' enemy will become Jesus' ambassador. This is the heart of Jesus and the power of His grace. I want you to see with me the change that grace produced. Following His baptism and having received sight, Luke writes in verse 19. And immediately He proclaimed Jesus in the... Sorry, verse 19. For some days He was with the disciples at Damascus. He was with the disciples, not against. He was with them. Grace produces love. See, he was against the disciples. Now he's with them. And what is he doing? Verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. Verse 22, he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See what grace does? Grace gives you love and grace gives you courage. The man who persecuted the church now preached Christ. The man who hated Christ will say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This conversion story not only magnifies the power of Jesus' grace, but also tells us how Jesus will reach the nations with the gospel. Jesus chose Saul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Christ will be proclaimed. The gospel will be defended and churches will be planted. All because Jesus pursued his enemy with grace. Well, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not like Paul. I'm not persecuted Christians. I'm not an enemy of God. Well, you know, the Bible tells us that we were enemies of God. We are enemies of God. And why, why does the Bible say that we are enemies of God? Look, look with me to uh, Romans chapter 5. This is Romans chapter 5, how Paul writes about our condition. This is while um, I'm reading verse 10, while we were enemies... That's our condition before we came to know Christ. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by His life? See, the Bible presents people who do not know Jesus as God's enemies. And that's because the Bible says that we are all born as sinners. A sinner is not someone who just does some sinful things, but someone who loves sin within his heart. 
See, sin is not just a rebellion against God. It is a replacement of God. It is a love for self-rule. It's a way of saying we don't want God at all. It is enmity with God, saying I don't want God. And so living my life on my own, choosing what I want, living the way I want to my own self-pleasure. The Bible says that the God of the Bible is a holy God. And because God is holy, God judges those who are his enemies. And here in Romans 5, we have the good news. The good news is that God sent his son to save enemies. He established peace with his enemies through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And for anyone who looks to Jesus Christ and his work, there will be reconciliation between God and man. Jesus took our sins and put it on his son and crushed him and put him to death so that we can be saved from the wrath of God, the wrath that enemies of God deserve. Well, friends, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't looked to Jesus for salvation, then the Bible says that you are an enemy of God. The Bible also offers good news that there can be peace between God and you. There's the blessing of having peace with a holy God. And that's if you will come to Jesus and put your faith in him. We see from the book of Acts Chapters 8 and 9, that Jesus pursues outsiders, Jesus pursues outcasts, and Jesus pursues his enemies. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, will you trust in him today? As you hear the good news of his love for his enemies? As I close, I want to share three application points from these two chapters. Jesus rescues through the preaching of the word. Jesus rescues through the preaching of the word. Jesus was building his church through his disciples as they took the word and preached the word of God. If there was any message that could save the Samaritans, any message that could save the eunuch, any message that could open their eyes, it was the message of Jesus and what he had done for them. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes from hearing the word of God. If there is any way that people can be saved, it is if they will hear the word of God. Well, friends, take the word to those people God has put around you. Pray for them. Ask God to open doors. Ask God to give you courage. Ask God to give you the clarity to bring the word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. We see that in Acts chapter 8. And Jesus rescues through the preaching of the word. Preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Number two, God is at work. God is is at work. One cannot read these two chapters without seeing the hand of God at work. It looked like the church would end soon as people scattered to different places. But the scattering of the church resulted in the growth of the church, not the death of the church. And this expansion was not the result of human planning, but divine providence. I mean, think of the eunuch's conversion. God sent Philip. It was perfect timing. The eunuch reading Isaiah 53. What better passage to share the good news from? 
Who would plan a gospel conversation on a lonely desert road for the salvation of a eunuch from Ethiopia? God. In the conversion of Paul, Jesus appears to him, sends him Ananias, and then gives him the opportunity to preach the gospel in Damascus. Only a wise, gracious, powerful, and sovereign God can do that. In these two chapters, we see that God owns missions, not us. Missions begin with God, will exist and flourish even when there is opposition and expand to the ends of the earth because of God. It is God who writes mission stories, not us. Not us. I know a person who never wanted to go back to his home country for the sake of missions, did not want to go back to his own people. He has even arrogantly said that even if God calls me to my own people, I will not go. Years passed. God softened his heart. And God willing, this man is going to move to the city of Cochin. And that's because God has softened his heart. God writes mission stories. We can be confident about the future of ministry because God is at work. We are not the heroes in missions. God is the one who is doing all these things. And therefore, we can be confident of future ministry. Number three, union with Jesus is gloriously comforting. Union with Jesus is gloriously comforting. Twice in this passage, Jesus says that Saul was persecuting him. Twice. This is in chapter 9. The context tells us that Saul was persecuting the church. In other words, when Jesus was talking to Saul, Jesus was telling Saul that he sees people's sufferings as belonging to himself. The union between Christ and his people is so strong and intimate that their griefs are seen as griefs that belong to Jesus. Because the church is in Christ and because she belongs to him, he sees her struggles as his own struggles and he acts. There is, there is no way he can abandon his people. Not only, not only do our pains belong to him, his death and resurrection belongs to us so that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So when every cell in me feels anxious and weak and burdened, I can come to the Savior and ask him to live his life in me so that I will live by faith with endurance and peace as he did. This is the comfort we receive because of our union with Christ. It isn't that he is just with us, but that we are in him. And all of him is in us. And all of him is for us. This is our security. This is our confidence. This is our joy. This is our strength. Christ in us. The hope of glory. And friends, Jesus builds his church through his disciples as they scatter the word of God by the help of the Holy Spirit. 
He builds his church by moving his disciples toward those outsiders, outcasts, and even his enemies with grace and compassion. We rejoice that Jesus has chosen us. He has made us one. And as we reflect on the grace that we have received, may we remember that we are called to be Jesus' witnesses wherever he has placed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for it reminds us of your love toward us. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus to save outsiders, foreigners, strangers who are far away from you, outcasts. We remember Jesus who came to save his enemies and he, he died on the cross for his enemies so that there can be peace between God and man through his sacrifice. So I pray, O oh God, that even as we meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are moved to people around us to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Spirit of God, give us the courage. Oh, Sovereign God, open doors for us. Oh, God, give us the clarity to speak the gospel clearly about who you are and about what hope you have given for sinful mankind. At the same time, God causes us to rejoice in the relationship that you have brought us into. We are sons and daughters of the living King. And even as we cherish this relationship with you, God, move us to celebrate the relationship with other fellow brothers and sisters. Help us celebrate, oh God, the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.